Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm Toby Porter, also from Planning Magazine, standing in for the holiday John Gagan. Every fortnight, we enter Room 106, the den of discomfort into which all new planning information is deposited, and extract the key things you need to know. In this edition, the government is proposing to change the law to let authorities ignore nutrient pollution protected watercourses by development schemes and so free up a logjam at what is claimed to be 145,000 stalled homes. We'll discuss the implications. The change is being proposed in an amendment to the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill that as we're speaking is yet to be voted on. A series of other amendments were passed last week. We'll highlight the most important. And the government has amended the planning policy governing wind farms aiming to better balance local communities' concerns against the benefits of new renewable energy sources. We'll ask how much difference the change will make. And we'll round up some of the other big news stories of the past fortnight. So, ready to go in? I guess so. Well, here we are again in room 106. And it's looking as full of impenetrable documentation as ever. Help is at hand, however. Yes, it looks as if our senior reporter, Samantha Eckford, is already in here. Hello, Sam. Hello. Good to have you with us. Can I start by asking you about those changes to the rules governing pollution of watercourses by nutrients? So at the end of August, the government pledged to finally do away with what it called nutrient neutrality red tape, which it said would allow for the delivery of more than 100,000 homes between now and 2030. It was, of course, referring to the advice issued by Natural England in 2018, which said that councils should not approve development that would add to the nutrient pollution in watercourses in protected habitats, where the site in question is already deemed to be in an unfavourable condition. The advice was eventually expanded to cover 74 authority areas. So the government is proposing to address this, as you say, via a number of amendments to the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill. Fantastic. And of course, the House Builders Federation, I think, are now saying that the amount of homes that have been blocked by this is 145,000. Yes. So what do the amendments say? So the most significant of the 54 amendments, which were uh, tabled by the government, make provision for new regulations to be inserted into Schedule 13 of the bill which refers to the Conservation of Species and Habitats Regulations. So new regulation 85A would apply to authorities making decisions on any proposed development in England where urban wastewater from any potential development could affect a relevant site. It provides that when making any relevant decisions, the authorities must assume that nutrients in urban wastewater from the potential development will not adversely affect the relevant site. Furthermore, A potentially adverse effect on the relevant site is not a ground for the competent authority to determine that an appropriate assessment of its impact is required. And authorities are also told to assume this even if a finding to the contrary is made. A similar provision, New Regulation 85B, covers applications for permitted development rights. So it essentially seems to be saying that you can't make a finding that this scheme is going to put pollutants into a protected watercourse that are sufficient to say no to the development. Yeah, exactly. And even if they do make such a finding, they're told to ignore any any findings. Okay. And what might that mean for councils and developers? 
So broadly speaking, experts agree that this is very good news for developers um, who would have access to sites that were previously undevelopable and would no longer be required to provide expensive mitigation for these sites. There is some concern that while many developers are likely to carry on as normal, in the short term, there is a bit of an incentive for developers to delay submitting applications, particularly on larger sites, because obviously in a few months' time, they may no longer be required to provide mitigation for these sites. So in the short term, there's a possibility of of some applications being delayed. And that delay would be because developers might wait for this new policy environment to take effect. Yes, exactly. And what about councils? It looks like the proposed amendments could benefit local authorities' plan making. So people I spoke to suggested that the sudden availability of sites that previously couldn't be brought forward could mean that the housing land supply positions for these authorities might suddenly spike up, meaning that there'll be less opportunity for speculative development. Many of these sites, of course, will have been allocated in authorities' local plans and will now potentially be able to come forward. However, the leader of Fair and Borough Council, um, which is one of the authorities affected by this advice, said that the authorities' local plan, um, which was adopted only earlier this year, includes a specific policy to address the nitrate problem, so the council's therefore having to seek legal advice just to understand what the potential implications of this would be, given that the nitrate policy could potentially contradict legislation in a few months' time. And what about the position with mitigation? Now, there are all these schemes that have come forward since this policy reared its head that were intended to allow developers and councils to mitigate situations where development was increasing nutrient pollution of, of protected watercourses. What happens now? So the government's initial announcement stated that investment in its existing nutrient mitigation scheme would be doubled, allowing for it to be significantly expanded. It also pledged to work with the house building industry to ensure that larger developers continue to make what they said was would be an appropriate and fair contribution, saying that it was working with the Home Builders Federation on the right structure and approach for this. Speaking to the HBF's director for cities, He said that the government's preferred solution is that house builders will make voluntary contributions to Natural England's nutrient mitigation fund going forward. In terms of the promise of a significant expansion of the scheme, commentators suggested that the scheme itself might be evolved to serve water treatment companies rather than developers going forward. Okay, And when are all these changes likely to take effect? It seems likely that the earliest the amendments are likely to take effect is early next year. So at the time of recording... These amendments are yet to be agreed by the Lords and would then also need to be agreed to by the House of Commons. The controversial nature of them means that people have suggested that there's, it's likely that there will be a bit of political ping-pong between the two Houses as they're agreed. Indeed, a counter-amendment which seeks to remove the provisions has already been tabled. Then, after the amendments are agreed and the bill becomes an Act, secondary legislation would be required in order to implement these changes. So it's looking like it could be a while yet. Okay, okay. And of course, they are so controversial because opponents of the changes see them as the government rowing back on a commitment to post Brexit not weaken any environmental protections. Yes, so they weren't well received by environmental groups. So we're talking about one amendment that is still to be voted on for the um, for the levelling up bill. But there have been a lot of other votes going on. Can you tell us about what's been going on with the bill and what's been added both by the government and um, amendments from other sources in the last week or so? Yes. So like you say, there's been a number of votes over the last week or so on amendments tabled by both the government and also some amendments that the government opposed that were agreed. There was a wide range of amendments. So um, among the amendments put forward by the government that were agreed, 
There was one on local nature recovery strategies that requires local plans, minerals and waste plans, supplementary plans and neighbourhood plans to take account of these new strategies. There were also amendments tabled by the government and agreed on street votes, planning data, neighbourhood plans, building preservation notices. So a wide range of topics. In terms of opposition amendments that were agreed despite government opposition, Amendment 191, which was tabled by crossbench peer Lord Ravensdale, inserts a new clause which places a duty on the Secretary of State and relevant planning authorities to have special regard to the mitigation of and adaption to climate change. Meanwhile, Amendment 191A inserts a new clause which would mean the Secretary of State must promote a comprehensive regulatory framework for planning to secure the physical, mental and social health and well-being of the people of England and healthy homes and neighbourhoods. There was also an amendment which should secure or aims to secure additional scrutiny of national development management policies and a further amendment that sought to require local authorities, local plans to identify the local nature and scale of housing need for social rent housing and to report on this information annually. Okay, so these have all been passed. I mean, these would be some big new purposes for the planning system and and new um, commitments that uh, that planning policies have to fulfil. But of course... None of it has passed into law yet. What happens now? What are the what, what are the, what are the next steps? So, like you say, they've they've been agreed um, these amendments by the House of Lords. The bill does still have to go back to the Commons. So they will have to be agreed on that side too. So, the government amendments are much more likely to stay in the bill unchanged, whereas obviously opposition amendments are under more threat and could potentially be removed or adapted in some way in the final version of the bill. But it's one we have to wait and see what happens. Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, sounds like the levelling up and regeneration bill is uh, is as yet unfinished business. So uh, I'll leave you here pouring through it and hope to see you again in Room 106 soon. Yep, see you soon. Toby, can I turn to you now and ask you about what's been going on with regard to planning policy and onshore wind in Parliament in the last couple of weeks? Well, following days of speculation reports, a written ministerial statement by Leveling Up Secretary Michael Gove on Tuesday confirmed immediate changes to the National Planning Policy Framework that undo the strict rules in place for nearly a decade. Okay, and what's the current state of play? Under restrictions introduced by David Cameron's government in 2015, added in a footnote to the MPPF in 2018, new onshore wind projects could only gain permission if they met two strict criteria. The site had to be identified in a local or a neighbourhood plan and the planning impacts must have been addressed and the remedies have community backing. Gove cited instances where projects had been derailed following objections from a single person. The latest changes, he said, would allow councils to consider the views of communities as a whole, which he said was a more balanced approach. Okay, and what are the changes? Alternative ways of identifying locations for new wind farm developments would be allowed. A new footnote, 53A, has been added to the National Planning Policy Framework. This says that, as well as local plans, local and neighbourhood development orders, or community right to build orders, will be able to be used for this purpose. It adds, in the case of local development orders, it should be demonstrated that the planning impacts identified by the affected local community have been appropriately addressed 
and the proposal has community support. The draft text of the National Planning Policy Framework, published shortly before Christmas last year, had proposed that this prerequisite for development, permitted through local development orders, be applied to other routes. But this provision has been amended in the final version of the published framework. Footnote 54, which many saw as a major block to onshore wind in England by imposing a double lock on such development, has also been amended. It had stated that applications for wind energy development involving one or more turbines should not be considered acceptable, unless in an area identified as suitable in the development plan. This provision has been extended, meaning sites identified as suitable in supplementary planning documents can now also be considered acceptable. Under the amended footnote, proposals are now required to appropriately, rather than fully, address the impacts of such schemes on local communities, and we'll need to secure community support rather than community backing, as the framework had previously stated. The draft text had proposed similar changes, although it proposed communities' concerns should be satisfactorily addressed rather than appropriately addressed, as the final published version now states. Meanwhile, a new paragraph, number 158C, states that when determining planning applications for renewable and low carbon development, local authorities should, in the case of applications for the repowering and life extension of existing renewable sites, give significant weight to the benefits of utilising an established site and approve the proposal if its impact are or can be made acceptable. Okay, so a few bits of tweaking to the National Planning Policy Framework, which the government says is going to produce a, a sort of more balanced policy environment for onshore wind schemes. They've also talked about doing some other things to kind of sell the idea of onshore wind to communities. Can, can, can tell us a bit about that. Well, Gove's statement said the government would come forward this autumn with more details on how public support for wind farms will be assessed and how communities that host wind farms could benefit from low energy bills. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has been facing mounting pressure to relax the rules surrounding onshore wind, with the most recent push coming from a Conservative MP, Sir Alok Sharma. The President of Climate Summit, COP26, had proposed an amendment to the energy bill, backed by 20 Tory MPs, to ease restrictions on planning. OK, and what's been the sector reaction? Well, planning columnist Angus Walker, partner of law firm BDB Pittman's, described the moves as entirely feeble. He said, footnote 53a widens where onshore wind policies can be located to various types of order, but footnote 54 is still there, which more or less overrides it. The renewables industry has warned the new policy does not go far enough, with Renewable UK's head of onshore wind, James Robottom, describing it as a slight softening at the edges. He added, we will still face a planning system stacked against onshore wind that treats it differently to every other energy source and infrastructure project. While industry will work with the government to see how these changes might be able to support a limited number of new developments, this is a missed opportunity to reinvigorate onshore wind in England after eight years 
of lost progress. Okay, so very interesting that despite all the headlines about a relaxation of onshore wind, those uh, in the industry and those advising them see this as a sort of modest adjustment of the policy environment. Exactly. Okay, and um, you've also been looking at some of the other key news stories of the of the last seven days. Yes, with Labour having a double-digit lead in the polls for the last 12 months, the party has appointed Angela Rayner as its new Shadow Secretary of State for Housing, Leveling Up and Communities. And Matthew Pennycook has been reappointed to the post of Shadow Minister of Housing and Planning as leader Sakir Starmer shuffles his team in readiness for the next general election. Also, a plan to replace the 50-year-old Broadwalk Shopping Centre in Knoll in Bristol with 850 homes, approved by Bristol City Council five weeks after it rejected the scheme, has been put on hold by ministers. Also this week, Lazary Properties 2, the owners of the mixed-use Brunswick Centre in central London, have failed in a bid to get High Court to disapply a planning condition, placing a restriction on the amount of food and drink space allowed there. This is despite the fact that recent changes to the use class order would have allowed the changes. Another news story. Stroud District Council has hit pause on its local plan after planning inspectors recommended withdrawing the blueprint due to, quote, fundamental, unquote, concerns over its infrastructure provision. The main issue raised were whether the M5 motorway would have the capacity to support new development and the viability of public transport and new infrastructure proposed at new housing settlements. And finally, the High Court has ruled that Lancaster City Council must pay part of developer City Portfolio's judicial review costs, despite the firm withdrawing its legal challenge to the local authority's decision to create a new conservation area without any prior consultation. The council said the, quote, catalyst for urgent action was said to be an application dated 13th December 2021 for the demolition of the old hospital at Ridgeley, close quote, a site not owned by City Portfolio. The area was subsequently varied to include the developer's land, but the firm withdrew its judicial review after reaching an agreement with the council, achieving its aims, but continued legal action over the costs. Thanks, Toby. And of course, listeners can read more on all of those stories at planningresource.co.uk. Well, I think our work is done. Let's get out of here before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great, that's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back with a bonus edition in a week's time, exploring the implication of the government's announcement that it will require all buildings of 18 storeys and above to have a second staircase for fire safety purposes. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Till Owen and Inga Marsden from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening. Bye.